Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. We are going to answer this question. Will robots take everyone's jobs? Or in a more nuanced way, what is the future of the human machine workplace and how can you prepare for it? This is Jenny Wise, joined as always in studio by co-host Sam Stern. Hi, Sam. Hi, Jenny. Today, Sam is here not just as co-host, but he's also wearing his hat as principal analyst leading employee experience research. And we also have with us in studio today, J.P. Gounder, VP Principal Analyst, who leads research on the future of work and robotics, among other things. So hello, J.P. Hello. Thanks for having me. And so today we have both Sam and J.P. here to talk about a new report called Start Designing the Future Human-Machine Workplace Now. Yeah, we're either predicting a future where the workers are going to all be replaced by robots or where the workers are all going to have the best jobs ever because Mm -hmm. the robots take all the boring stuff. And, you know, those are sort of endpoints of a continuum. It's not going to be either or. Some people will lose jobs. And I think there's some good forecast data about this that JP can share. But new jobs will be created and a lot will change about everybody's jobs. And that's probably a more interesting thing to focus on because it involves Mm -hmm. everybody. And it's something that you can actually take action on, right? I mean, there's going to be variability here. Some of the areas where we're seeing a lot of job loss is in areas like cubicle work, where we have armies of people who are simply cutting and pasting, doing data entry, doing really manual processes, financial reconciliation. And so what we're starting to see is that those jobs are going away as automation marches in. But for the purposes of this report, it's more of a broad look at how if you're an EX pro or you're interested in employee experience, how do you start to prepare for what is a very long takeoff for these technologies into the future? Yeah. And I think one of the stats that we shared in the report that's really telling about this and I think underlines JP's point about how important it is to actually take control of this and design this in a certain way is that most employees don't believe that their experience matters, that companies are not taking it into account when it comes to integrating artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. AI. So that perception, we think, is based on a lot of reality that companies see this potential of these new technologies and are trying to integrate them without necessarily thinking about the best use cases or how it will impact employees or how employees will perceive that this is happening, right? It might even not impact what I do day to day, but it feels like an existential threat because I assume it will soon. And all of that is in play and should be part of your consideration when you integrate robots and AI into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I like that more nuanced approach to it, right? Because there is just from the perception of what does this mean to integrate machines into the workplace, they're coming after our jobs or... As you mentioned, they're going to automate all the mundane, boring parts of my job so I get to spend all my time on the cool stuff. So maybe this is good. So there is that perception that everyone has when this begins to happen. And so managing that perception as you begin to integrate is important. You know, we have basically three principles that we talk about in the report. The first one is all about establishing a good division of labor. We call it free employees to do more important work. And so part of what you just said is true. For some of us, we want to take certain tasks off of our plates that are not worthy of human effort. It's something like uh, when you're setting up a meeting or something like that. Imagine you could just walk into a room and say, start the meeting. Now, you see little pieces of this today. So freeing people to, you know, focus on the things that are more human. And then, you know, another principle that we elicited out of this research was all about keeping humans in the loop. So giving people some control over these processes, not making them just slaves to an algorithm, Mm -hmm. but that they have some meaningful participation in that system. And then the final one, is all about making humanness a strength. And so designing the future job roles and the future workplace around the things that make us most human. I think Sam is very eloquent on this one, so I'll let him 
describe that? There are things that we are particularly good at. The one that stands out most to me, and I think for our listeners in customer experience, is connecting to another human being. The emotional components of interactions, of conversations, just aren't as good in a digital interaction, digital interface as a human-to-human. And we see this in our data where we find that the emotions associated with human-to-human interactions, it's either face-to-face or voice-to-voice, are much more memorable, either positive or negative, and so impact loyalty to a much greater degree. And that's the kind of area where you want to leave humans doing the things that humans do best, right? Picking up on emotions, picking up on subtle nonverbal cues that other humans give off and tailoring the interaction to make it fit that context. That's something that humans do really well. The other one that we highlighted in the research and I think is a really important one to keep in mind is handling ambiguity, handling Mm -hmm. subtlety of meaning. JP found this fantastic tweet talking about how Facebook can recognize that I am bald, but doesn't understand my intent. It suggests baldness cures to me rather than razor blades. And it's that kind of subtlety that I'm bald by choice. I'm shaving my head rather than I'm bald and want to solve that problem that is still much more in the human realm as a strength than in the machine realm. Obviously, Jenny, you know a lot about this from the research you do. But the final important point that we have in the report is about making it so that these systems adapt to you as much as possible, as opposed to asking humans to adapt to the technology. Now, for most... Yes, preach. (laughs) (laughs) Human first interaction design, yes. I'm sure you talk about this 20 times a day, but we reinforced the value of that, but how Mm -hmm. hard it is, right? I mean, people can come talk to you, but it is certainly great work in progress. Yeah, and I think, Jenny, to that point further, you know, you you think about that, like the, the evolution of man sort of images where, you know, we, we get more and more upright walking. And then there's kind of joke versions where the last version is us now hunched back over a keyboard is a classic example. And I would even say it's like, you know, we developed this incredible capability to write and to speak and to read. And now we're probably going to dumb that down to ones and zeros, right? If we don't make the AI adapt to us, we're adapting to their language. And that's a loss of meaning. That's a loss of value. And so that's why we're highlighting adapting AI to humans rather than the other way around. It's an important principle of creating good experiences that integrate both AI and humans. And also that let humans know how to use it. So even from the basis (laughs) of onboarding employees onto these new technologies, they're going to have to understand how to use it and leverage it, as well as whatever the machines are acting on and saying to whoever that sort of end user is. So when you're thinking about that human factor, one thing I heard was to say that the machines are not the answer to everything, right? You cannot have a business in the future that is purely running on machines because there are these human elements that are strengths that you want to have human-to-human interaction for emotional reasons. So companies need to think about what are the human elements that create a more positive workforce as well as customer experience and how do you begin to focus on those as well as then if you have an algorithm, let's say, or a machine, how do you let that retain some human elements or pick up some human elements so that it doesn't appear too robotic? Are both of those correct interpretations? I guess what I would say for the first one where Mm -hmm. you're saying you're always going to have to have a human involved, it's going to depend a little bit on what you're going after. I think of McDonald's Right. right now where effectively what they've said is Human ordering experiences have never been great at McDonald's, I think it's fair to say. So their argument for using automation is we're going to put in these kiosks, we're going to allow people to order themselves, and it's going to personalize it more. But it's also extremely digital experience. It's not a human experience. So that's a case where for purposes of scale and business model, that's going to be necessary. But you're not going to find the same thing at a high-end restaurant. So there could be some bifurcations here where wealthier people are going to get much more personalized service from humans. And to your second point, 
point, I think that's right. One of the training elements really for algorithms is to have subject matter experts to train those algorithms along with big data to make sure that they are trending in the direction that you want the customer or the employee to want them. One other thing I would add to that is the idea that the focusing especially in the early days, on tasks that AI or robots can take over that are very narrow use cases, right? Sort of one-offs. And I think if you looked along a customer journey and different elements of the journey that you could deliver, and maybe let's go back to the McDonald's example where the order will be taken digitally by that kiosk. The burger is still going to be prepared by a person and the bag is probably still going to be handed over the counter by another person. But that was still a very appropriate use case of technology to automate and improve the efficiency and improve the customer's satisfaction with that element of the experience that wasn't a great human-to-human experience before anyway. And that's where we're seeing a lot of effective implementations is to focus very narrowly on one touch point or one discrete element of a journey. I wrote a report called AI and Automation Aren't Quick Wins. And one of the Hmm. theses there was you have to go after these focused, narrow scenarios. If you're boiling the ocean, it's going to be very hard. We see this in in healthcare where companies trying to cure cancer, that's a big one to bite off. And frankly, a lot of organizations have been unsuccessful using that technology. But instead, if you say, I'm going to use computer vision, a very narrow area of AI to better detect early stage tumors, that's an achievable goal. So cure cancer is a whole bunch of tasks and it's a whole bunch of um, different work streams. But if you start with one, you can expand out from there. And it also will create a sense of trust among your employees, right? People will feel like I can see the relationship between this technology and my job rather than that general fear we talked about before about it's going to replace me. And I think efficacy is important to that, right? That it works in that setting, in that scenario for that use case. So we're not just trying to replace everything, but also the company seems to be doing this where it helps, where it does make things easier for me, employee, or where it is a better experience or reduces costs so much that's kind of a no-brainer rather than just anywhere and everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. You only get one chance to make a first impression, right? I mean, it's the same truth for people and technology. So I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more to what you found in the research around trust and control that employees need to have with these machines. One of the things that we have to note is that there's variation in the trust that we naturally bring to particular kinds of technologies. So if a technology is extremely deterministic, that means it's following a if this, then that kind of pathway. That's what we're kind of used to when we use technology. We have a high expectation of what the outcome will be. The other end of that spectrum is probabilistic. The more AI is involved, the more it is making not informed guesses, right? It's predicting with maybe 80% accuracy that this will be what you want. So when it's more probabilistic, we bring an inherently lower level of trust. And related to this is transparency and opacity. So if something's transparent, we understand why the machine is doing what it's doing. It's very easy for us to audit why it made the decision it did. And we bring a higher trust than if it is opaque. And we don't know why it made the decision. When IBM Watson was on Jeopardy, there was a category of U.S. cities. And it doesn't really matter what the question is, but Watson's answer was Toronto. People in the audience actually gasped (laughs) because they were like, how could Watson make such a simple mistake? It was opaque, right? They had to go back and figure out, well, there are a few Torontos in the United States, small towns. And basically, Mm -hmm. IBM Watson wasn't so sure. It was only 36% sure of its answer. So you have to be able to unpack. But of course, everyone's trust was momentarily broken. I love that sort of thumbnail of history here, which is the challenge when it is probabilistic is it will be wrong sometimes. And we are just not as humans comfortable with that Mm -hmm. from our machines, from our technology. So when it's wrong, we are much harsher 
in our judgment of an algorithm than we would be of another human. Humans are wrong all the time. And we're wrong all the time, even if we don't admit it. So we're kind of used to being wrong or used to humans being wrong. When the algorithm is wrong, we lose trust for it. So this was one of the techniques for getting humans more comfortable with that is if they could adjust it and they had some control over it, even as little as 2% from this one Wharton study that was done, they were much more likely to use it, which was important because the algorithm was getting to much better outcomes. It was it was right a lot more than the humans, even though it was wrong some of the times because it was making best guesses. And if you predict that this is two-thirds right, then you're going to be wrong one-third of the time. But that was much more accurate than the humans who were maybe 50-50 on that same thing. And so you want the algorithm to be used by the humans, but you need it to have a little bit of wiggle room so the humans feel like, okay, I saw it got that one wrong. Now I can tweak the model, but not too much so I don't ruin its accuracy. Right. So it's sort of this balance, the feeling of control without too much so you don't destroy its accuracy. Also, the other issue is with machine learning, the answers that the system gives you over time are going to change. With different right. data, right? Mm-hmm. So you, It's probabilistic and it's Bayesian, right? It's updating priors, which is great, except if you don't know that it's doing that and you don't see its work, you don't know why it gives you a different answer next time, which is disconcerting to a human. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of challenges to traditional employee experience in the sense that you can't just shove these systems in front of people and expect them to adapt to our earlier point. It has to be an ongoing, reinforced kind of system to make them get the most out of it and to learn how to work with this bot, this AI, yeah. effectively. You really should be getting it to show its work more, tell its stories more to the degree that it can, or, you know, you tell stories on its behalf to so explain that, well, you know, Toronto wasn't a category error because there are Torontos in the States, right? In that example. And the other thing is reminding employees, reminding humans of the advantages, right? So if it is saving you time or cognitive load, or if it is more accurate in many instances, reminding the humans of that, that this isn't all loss when it gets things wrong. There's actually upsides and gains and improvements that are coming from this too. You know, humans are very good at getting used to the new situation adapting. And so we might not notice and give credit to that. We'll just take it for granted once it's implemented. Do you want to highlight some of those improvements? Thinking about this algorithm, if you were to personify it, like this is a new colleague that they have that's answering all of the questions (laughs) for them. And do they trust this colleague? What is their level of tolerance for this colleague? How do you train this colleague? to interact with. So you almost have to apply that interaction design perspective to an algorithm, which is something that I think often gets lost. And then also when you're getting into trust too, you have to think about the inclusivity of that training data and also what it's basing it right. off of. This is right? very that, That's a huge one. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a huge problem right now, it just in all different sorts of contexts. It could be that training data doesn't have uh, minority groups involved and therefore there's some sort of systematic racial bias or there's a gender bias. That is definitely not just about ethics, but it's also about the accuracy of the output. Yes. Absolutely. It's yes. both, yeah. you know. Right. So yeah, we have some good research on that. Brandon Purcell has done some good work around ethics and, and uh, training models and things like that. So what we concluded is that you have the opportunity to shape how this works. And if you're not boiling the ocean, if you're taking the right steps, if you're investing in change management, if you're keeping people at the center of your analysis as you do all of this, and that person could be the customer, it could be the employee serving the customer. But in this case, employee experience being a key point, put the person at the center and do this incrementally and learn what works. You have to be very careful about just transporting the bias of existing systems, existing decision-making into the algorithm because it's so much more powerful and can spin out. And we've seen many you know, cautionary tales about this. The optimistic note I'll strike, though, is that it's easier for us to call it out in the algorithm, right? It's not a human. It's not connected to our own foibles in these areas, our right. own biases, right? There's great research show everyone has biases, right? And so it's hard for us to admit it 
you know, we want to be seen as good and decent people, but it's easier to call it out in the algorithm, but it's an actual reflection of society that we're seeing the algorithm play out. So maybe it's easier to fix through the algorithm than it would be to fix in ourselves. That's like they were looking at this algorithm about hiring, sort of an HR algorithm, and they found that it was biased against certain types of names. And that was a huge problem that they were then able to correct. And they found that when they talked to the actual HR employees, they were also biased. They (laughs) just weren't able to systematically track it in the same way. So there is the opportunity to identify and improve on things in the workplace using machines. That's good optimism. That's a great example of what my... So, okay, my optimism has a little bit of foundation. Yes, it it could be true. fix it in, yeah. in the, the algorithm. And it's easier to say, okay, the algorithm's broken, it. we're going to make it better rather than, well, I have to now admit my own bias, like, oh, you know, horror. This is my, my yeah. personal identity is that I'm a good person and I don't have biases when, of course, we all do. Okay. There's much more in this report that we didn't get time to talk to, but hopefully this shed a light on the fact that this is more than just robots taking over your jobs, that there are <laughs> many types of machines many opportunities to start with and ways to identify where to get started and then how you're going to onboard employees, get them used to working besides machines and optimize that going forward. So listeners, if you're interested in finding more, we'll have a link to the report. Start designing the future human machine workplace now in the notes. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. you could join us for this week's episode of CX Cast. If you want to learn more about this week's topic, check out the notes section of the episode for some links to relevant research. And as always, you can email us at cxcast at forester.com with any questions or topic ideas for future episodes. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality.